0: Good morning to those folks who are early joiners. Got a few. Good morning, Susan. We're glad you're here. And uh, we'll just get slowly easing into uh, our start today. I've got my coffee. Everyone has a. Uh, oh, I'm actually just out of it, so that's no good.
1: <laughs> good morning,
0: morning, Robin. Yeah, that's a good point, Rich. (laughs) Good morning, Adam. It's uh, nice to see folks coming in and joining us. And uh, feel free, we'd love to say hello in the chat. Uh, Just a reminder, if you're saying hi in the chat, go ahead and select all. attendees and, um, make sure that way everyone can get a chance to see your message. Just getting, uh, situated this morning, a few more minutes, we'll have fun seeing everybody join us and look forward for folks to say hi. Good morning. Good morning. If you're in the D.C. area, uh, looks like a beautiful morning with uh, a little bit of rain from last night. Everything's looking fresh. And um, maybe for folks who have to deal with some pollen, maybe a little bit of that's washed away. And if you're from uh, out of town, feel free to say where you're from when you uh, are saying good morning. We'd love to hear that. All right. Sun is shining in PG County. Wonderful. Maybe a few more minutes before we get started. And uh, again, thanks to the, the early risers or at least the early joiners. All right, we've got, uh, got the sun popping out over northeast. Waiting for those clouds to break. If you're joining us, say hello in the chat. Make sure you have a chance to select all attendees and panelists so we can all say it. Happy Earth Day from Terry. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, Rajesh. Good morning, Perry. I'm Perry B. That's right. We've got to <laughs> make sure we have a chance to say hi to everybody. and. Um, Again, if you're if you're saying hello, you're joining us from some other part of the country or the world. We would love to hear it. Um, good morning, Donna. Good morning, Jeff. And Ed. It's uh, always nice to able to say hello for a little bit and have a few minutes before we get started. We'll get started here in just another minute or two, Um, just letting everyone have a chance to log in, get comfortable, grab something to drink if you want, coffee, tea, beverage of choice, and uh, be able to relax and start our morning off well today together. Good morning, Vincent.
1: right good
0: morning Trang I hope everyone has a great day too <laughs> it's uh it's nice to start out together and uh spend a little bit of time together on our Sunday mornings um in this way and um I hope I hope uh folks I was mentioning earlier if you just log on my coffee's actually out so I'm in a uh you know I hope you have your full cup of warm, nice beverage for the morning, uh, tea, coffee, whatever that may be. Good morning. Oh, good morning, uh, Joe and Darwin, and good morning, Abby. Hope everyone's doing well today. We'll get started in just the next minute or so. Yes, all uh, people, pets, all the uh, animals, house plants, you know, you gotta have your, uh, everyone's welcome this morning to be together. Oh, let's see. Uh, Kristen says, hi gang, wishing everyone fun digging uh, the azaleas and flowers and digging in the dirt. All right. It is, uh, if you have a chance to get your hands in some dirt today, it seems like it will be a good day to do that. Good morning, Laura. Hope you're well. All right, in the next minute or two, we're gonna get started. And um, it's been wonderful to see everyone saying hello. Um, welcome. And um, please uh, say hello in the chat. We we love to hear where you're coming from if you're somewhere other than the local area even if you're from around here let us know and um if, especially if you're visiting for another ethical society please give a shout out to that as well it's great if you want to share your mer- messages with everyone here's another reminder please uh be sure that your chat setting is for all panelists and attendees um this is a good time to get a candle to light during our candle lighting and settle into a comfy. Uh, seat with your beverage of choice as we continue to gather and let me just see We've got a few more hellos morning sue and joe uh joe london and um all right and it sounds like uh robin you know facebook can get <laughs> grumpy quite often i find um so we're not going to worry about that as much today um and uh we'll probably you know try to post something up later but For now, look forward to seeing everyone here. Good morning, Christine, and uh, good morning, Karen. And good morning, Sue. All right. Um, Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I am Brian Fashigian, and today's platform is called Environmental Justice in Indian Country and Moving Toward a Transformational Land Ethic uh, by Dina Giulio whitaker And um, I'm gonna start with some opening words. This is by Lynn Harrison, Committed to Respond. Committed to respond to the call of a wounded world. We join together this day with loving hearts, hands and minds, embracing the interconnected web of water, air and earth. We light a fire of sustaining hope ever brighter, with love and justice. May we bring forth this day new wisdom, strength, and courage to create a world not of wealth, but well-being, a world of new peace and abundance for all. As we give thanks to this earth, our shared and singular home, may we dedicate ourselves to its ongoing care, rising to the calls deep within us and all around us, May we respond today and always with courage and with love. Let us gather together. We begin today's platform with music from our guest artist of the week, Gary Hardinet.
2: Give me birds at the dawning. Birds at the dawning. Birds at the dawning to sing my soul away. Give, Give me roses at, sunrise, roses at sunrise, roses at sunrise, roses at sunrise to sing my soul
1: away.
2: Give me oh, breezes at oh, midday. Breezes It is at midday. Sunset, flames in the sunset, flames in the sunset to sing my soul. Awake. Give me candles at twilight, candles at twilight, candles at twilight to sing my soul. Awake. love in the, the evening. evening love Give me birds at the dawning, birds at the dawning, birds at the dawning to sing my soul.
0: I was uh, reminded that that was the West Chorus and we love to um, hear the songs and music and I'll make sure I get who's doing what right for the rest of the morning here, let's see. Especially with all of yours help. Welcome once again to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Brian Pashigian and my pronouns are he and him and I'm today's officiant. Visitors, we especially welcome you from near and far we hope that you'll say hello in the chat, that you might send an email to our membership coordinator, Macio Thomas, and you can also fill out a connection form. Macy will put that link up in the chat with his email. And we hope that you will join us after the platform service for a chance to say hello. Our chat will stay open through much of the platform service, closing for the address itself and reopening. If you don't wanna see the chat, this is a good time to minimize it, to minimize distractions if that's what you prefer. Each week, a member of our community reads our statement of purpose, so that we might hear our shared values in each other's voices. If you are interested in taking a turn to read the statement of purpose, you can sign up at tinycc slash sop This week, our reader is Troop 1123. For now, um, this is an important point. It's not 1123. It's Troop 1123, and I invite. That troop to read our statement of purpose.
3: The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each other's, each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and
4: support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and
3: responsibility for each other and the earth. We warmly invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all
4: borders.
0: Thank you, Troop 1123. If you have a candle at home, I invite you now to light it as I share our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I'm particularly mindful of the difference between justice and accountability, with the recent trial that we all um, witnessed and the justice or accountability in the words that are used and the result of our court systems, whether that is injustice or not. Even in the words that are used to describe past historical issues to address and to make sure that we're aware of future concerns and current day concerns, as with the recognition of the Armenian Genocide by using the word genocide by the President of the United States for the first time. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our loss. Today's meditation is adapted from the poem, Travelers Upon the Earth by Elizabeth Strong. Used it recently and felt it was appropriate again for today. As we enter into meditation, bring awareness to your breath. Notice the feeling of breathing in and out. The air we breathe connects us with other things that live and grow. We breathe in, and out as we remember our connections with life. As we continue to take in nourishing breaths and release them into the world, hold in your mind's eye one of the flowers of early spring. Maybe you've seen their green shoots already exploring the world above. Maybe you've seen them blooming. Maybe you've seen them on a walk or a trip around town, breathe in and out as we extend a welcome to these signs of spring. It has taken long months beneath cold ground for these flowers to prepare for their blooming. It has t- taken each of us long times of growth through sorrow and joy to prepare for our living now. We breathe, breathe in and out as we reflect on the times, preparation, and waiting. The blooming season is short. The flowers stay only a brief time. We're travelers upon the earth, travelers through all to brief lifetimes. Therefore, let our moments be bountiful. We breathe in and out. As we savor this moment in in its brevity, we breathe in and out as we open our hearts to abundance, channeling the time and gifts that are ours to manage. Let us rejoice in our unique colors, aromas, and sounds. Let us celebrate together in love that as we travel away, we take with us the memory of life and flowers. We breathe in and out as we consider with gratitude the gifts around us, among us, and within us. We breathe in and out as we remember and anticipate beauty. We continue our meditation in silence and the music that follows. There was Gary, <laughs> that was wonderful. I want to introduce our platform speaker today. Um, Dina Gilio Whitaker, uh, excuse me, Whitaker, <laughs> um, is from the Colville Confederated Tribes, is a lecturer of American Indian Studies and California State University at San Marcos and an independent educator in American Indian environmental policy and other issues. At CSUSM, she teaches courses on environmentalism and American Indians, traditional um, ecological knowledge and religion and philosophy, Native women's activism, American Indians and sports, and decolonization. She also works within the field of critical sports studies, examining the intersections of Indigenity and the Sport of Surfing. As a public intellectual, Dina brings her scholarship into focus as an award-winning journalist as well, contributing to numerous online outlets, including Indian Country Today and the Los Angeles Times, High Country News, and many more. Dina is the author of two books, the most recent award-winning As Long as Grass Grows, The um, Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock. She is currently under contract with beacon press for a new book under the working title illegitimate nation privilege race and accountability in the u.s settler state we welcome you dina and are very um, happy to have you and look forward to sitting back and listening to what you have to share this morning
4: thank you brian Um, good morning washington ethical society thank you so much for your invitation i'm happy to be here um, I'll just introduce myself formally. Why? Gillia Whitaker. Isma And um, I just greeted you in um, my traditional language, which is in Um, and I'm a descendant of the Calvo Confederated Tribes of Seneyxst Band, um, which is in Washington State. But I was, but I'm a. Currently, and born and raised actually in Southern California, or what's currently called Southern California, in the traditional and unceded homelands of the Ahashiman Nation um, in, uh, in Orange County, what's currently called Orange County. And, um, and I will also uh, just introduce myself a little bit more, kind of traditionally. Um, based on if I was in my home community in, which is on the Caldwell reservation in Washington, I would uh, tell you, and this is very standard practice. We, we introduce ourselves by who we're related to. Um, I would say that I'm the daughter of Rosemary Burnett Gilio the granddaughter of Mabel Dizitel, and the great-granddaughter of Ida oh uh, Brian Dissetel and Gilbert Dissetel, and, um, and so this way, by introducing myself that way, even though it's sort of out of context here, um, it establishes my, um, my kinship to that community and, my, and also my accountability um, and transparency to that community. Um, so, um, so yeah, all of that said, um, I don't think there's anything else I need to uh, talk about other than let's say Happy Earth Day. It's been a very busy week for me. Um, lots going. In fact, this whole month has just been pretty uh, pretty over the top uh, in terms of the, the work that I've been doing and the speaking invitations and things like that. So um, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. I do have a PowerPoint to share with you. Okay. Is that good? Can everybody see that? Um, Okay, well, I'm counting on somebody uh, to tell me if there's something not working right. So I'm assuming that you can all see this. Um, I wanna to talk to you today about my work in environmental justice and um, and then in the toward the end of the slideshow, I wanna lean into the work that I'm currently doing on this new book that Brian mentioned um, and uh, some of the things that I'm thinking about. But first, uh, just to give a little background about how this book comes to be, um, this book has been out for two years now. In fact, exactly two years. It was released in April of 2019. And, um, and the book is a result of, you know, probably most books of years and years of work and research and of thinking about this topic, especially as a student. I, I went back into school as an older, non traditional student. And um, but as somebody who's um, came out of sort of an activist background, and you know, I I call myself like a street activist, um, who who was you know, have, has always been committed to environmental issues and also to issues of my people, of um, being an American Indian person, um, who was born and raised. Um, away from my tribal community as a result of federal policy, you know, very, very oppressive federal um, Indian policy. So, um, but I went back into school as an older person to to study more deeply about this history, um, which uh, is really uh, a series of uh, lies. And, you know, the way that we're all educated, the way I was educated, um, was based on a lot of lies and have truths and, um, and, and evasions really. And so um, I was, I went into this American Indian studies program at the University of New Mexico. And I was taking, uh, there was a course on environmental justice, and I was taking as many environmental oriented courses as I could. And this, um, this environmental justice course, um, I was, I noted that there was very, not very much pointed material about it. There's a lot of sort of peripheral material about environmental problems um, that native people face, um, but there was really almost nothing about, about environmental justice from like a, the way that the federal government from a policy standpoint. Um, later on, I got into uh, a grad student uh, core, a grad course on environmental justice outside of the American Indian Studies program. And, um, and so we got into the, you know, the, the history of what environmental justice is in in the US. Um, and, and we talk about environmental justice as really being a discourse that that's composed of like theory and activism and law and policy. Um, and, and what I noticed in that course is what was that there was, we read no native authors at all. There was almost no mention of American Indians and, uh, and what environmental justice means in the context of Indian country or you know, American Indian communities and uh, reservations. So I continued throughout grad school to do research Um, to try to uncover all of this and understand the distinctions about what environmental justice means in the American Indian context. And I ended up writing a master's thesis about it. And um, the master's thesis uh, really was the seed for this book. Um, In that thesis, I developed an idea of what it means to indigenize environmental justice, um, because of the ways that it's it's theorized in federal law and policy um, and the ways that it does not account for American Indians history and the and the United States history with native peoples. Um, the way it's characterized in in policy platforms and law is it hinges on this concept called environmental racism which says that there's these different kinds of um, it's a kind of racism that exposes people of color to disproportionate risk and harm of uh, like toxic developments and so it's a fairly narrow conception and it works for most communities of color it's appropriate but for American Indian people it's too narrow because um, because these policies uh, frameworks don't don't acknowledge American Indians' very, very different history with the federal government, as peoples with treaty relationships, as peoples who are nations—you know, that pre—pre-existing uh, to the U.S. In the Constitution, and the Constitution—and as people with, um, uh, so American Indians as nations and uh, and with um jurisdiction over lands and and also very different relationships to those lands because of their worldviews, which i'm going to get into in a few uh, in a in a few minutes here so the, but this big difference is the the political difference of native peoples as nations not as ethnic minorities and so um, to conflate American Indians with other racialized people is really um, an obstacle for Native people, um, and it, and also this history of um, having lands that were invaded, um, being subject to genocide, and then you know hundreds of years of land theft. These are all very very different experiences that um, need to be taken into consideration when we talk about what environmental. Uh, injustice is for our communities. So uh, the way that we talk about it in American Indian studies, we talk about um, the United States and, and American Indians, especially American Indian experience with the United States. In this framework that we call settler colonialism, Um, And and one way that we can understand settler colonialism is through this idea that we've all been educated uh, throughout our lives to, uh, and this this idea of manifest destiny. And this idea of manifest destiny is really uh, so uh, visually represented by this painting that we've all seen, I'm sure in our lives, called uh, American Progress, which was painted in 1872 by uh, John Gast. And, and so this, this serves as such a great tool for kind of deconstructing and, uh, and understanding this relationship between the United States and, and uh, American Indian nations. And, um, and so if we like take a minute to, to, to do this uh, this understanding of this painting, uh, we can, we can identify all of the kind of constituent parts of what we mean when we say settler colonialism. And, um, and if we focus on the central figure, um, her name, we think we might think that she's an angel, um, but she's not an angel. Her name is Columbia. And, you know, we can presume that, you know, of course, she's Columbia, you know, is, you know, is, is, about Columbus, it's a hat tip to Columbus, who of course is you know mythologically discovers America. Um, and she's carrying in her hand a book that we might be tempted to think is a is a Bible, but it's not. It's a book of education. And she's got a um, uh, on her on her arm a roll of wire, and know, it looks like she's stringing um, probably a telegraph wire across uh, across the land, and and so we see these representations of um, technology and we see the railroads coming across and we see toward the east, you know, uh, big ships on a body of water. We see a big bridge. Um, We see in the foreground some implements of modern farming. We see, you know, intrepid uh, pioneers venturing west. Uh, And, uh, and we also see, you know, so what's happening here is um, the sweeping from east to west, uh, the sweeping of European technology and European uh, implements of modern life and, uh, and it's in a sort of it's also bound up with ideas of enlightenment because it's the we see the rising sun and um, she seems to be bringing this light with her Columbia and as she's bringing this light with her from east to west she's chasing out the darkness and the darkness is represented by you know we see Indians here in in, uh, in the west, and buffalo here in the distance, and, and wild animals, bears and wolves. and they, they seem to be running and running away from this and, and uh, hiding or being chased out. And so, um, so if we kind of break down the message, what's the visual mes- message here? Um, there's certainly religious overtones uh, going on here with the, the angelic-like figure of Columbia and the what we might think of as a, a Bible or the mistake as a Bible, but um, but the message here is that uh, you know Western technology, Euro-American technology, is is coming across the land to replace um, you know this backward, uncivilized. Uh, people and um and so this is the the construction of and this is what manifest destiny the idea of manifest destiny tells us that um it's the divine you know americans europeans have the divine right to come to the land and and take it and they inherit right there's this uh, sense of inheriting righteously inheriting the land by divine right because god deems it so and, um, and it's because indigenous nations are constructed as fundamentally inferior and, uh, and uncivilized and backwards and savage. And so it's the, that construction of indigenous inferiority that legitimizes this very violent um, process of taking of the land. Uh, and, and it's embedded in the entire legal system that begins with a, the very first Supreme Court decision about Indian issues in 1823, um, that, that uh, articulated this thing that we call the doctrine of discovery, um, which is the, the beginning, kind of the, the beginning in law of that justified taking of the land from native people because they don't, they're not Christians. Um, it's not because they're, they don't they're a race a racialized group, it's because they're not Christians. Uh, and they're not using the land according to European Christian values. Uh, and so this begins the building of a foundation of a legal structure that maintains to this day a very paternalistic, Uh, and uh, what we call hegemonic or just meaning controlling relationship between the U.S. and um, native nations. And and part of this, it's a very, uh, you know, very in depth, it's very um, uh, uh, intricate matrix of legal controls that the U.S. builds up over a period of 150, couple of hundred years. And um, part of this is about the uh, settler colonialism. We say settler colonialism is genocidal. It's always genocidal because the goal of settler colonialism is to eliminate the native so that European, white European populations can uh, replace the indigenous population. And so this also has to do with um, Uh, So if we think about genocide being a process of killing a people, um, there's this term that we use that's also, that's related to that, it's the killing of knowledge systems, um, or what's been called epistemicide, and um, that's also something I'm going to get to in a moment. But I wanna focus for, for a moment here on um, this process of, of uh, so another term, kind of another term that we use often, it's called ecocide. And, and it combines this idea of uh, the killing of landscapes or the, the, in this case, the remaking of landscapes in a Euro-American way, um, the, the re, uh, fashioning, the, the, this process of sweeping across the continent, bringing these new technologies, you know, which we're very, we're very uh, educated to think of in very celebratory ways. We think of Western expansion and the industrial revolution, and this is you know, celebrated as all this wonderful technology that, has, that Europeans and Euro-Americans bring with them. And um, and so they they, these are processes of uh, of building a cultural landscape and uh, in a way that's different than the cultural landscapes that Native people have uh, built for themselves, um, but that Europeans couldn't recognize when they got here. They didn't realize that they were looking at landscapes that had been managed for uh, thousands and thousands of years. And so they they narrated, uh, this idea that they came to uh, a, a continent that was a virgin wilderness um, this untouched landscape that, you know, there were really no people here, um, but they were only Indians they were, and there were only a few of them, and they weren't using the land in ways that Europeans recognized. And so, so all of these narratives are woven together in this way, again, that justifies this violent taking of land. Um, But but as this European technology, this modernity um, is sweeping across the land and remaking the landscapes in every step of the way as it goes, um, it's bringing all this death and destruction to Native Native communities and in countless ways, in countless places, it happens everywhere. and, but some of the ways that are the some of the examples that are the most obvious are um, in these slot, in these uh, three images here. On the on the left here we see an image of the Missouri River watershed. So these are ecosystems uh, here. So this is the Missouri River watershed ecosystem, and you see that the Missouri River is, um, it's it transverses boundaries of uh, these Midwestern states North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Montana, Wyoming border and here on the the east I don't even I don't remember what I this might be what Wisconsin over here I don't know um, but this is a watershed that becomes um, during the time of the early 20th century we have the the uh, the the Great Depression in the 1930s and the response, the Rooseveltian response to this Great Depression, which was the creation of the Works Progress Administration, which was of course about bringing jobs um, to, to escape this grinding poverty that's gripping the nation. And one of the ways that this happens is through the building of infrastructure projects. And uh, one of those kinds of infrastructure fr- projects was the building of dams. And, uh, and so in the Missouri River watershed in 1944, the Pick Sloan Act is passed. It's a, it's a law that, um, that authorizes the building of five dams. And these dams are, um, so just five dams. Um, the goal of these dams is to, um, control flooding, control the flooding of the, the Missouri River, and also to create, um, Irrig- you know, these reservoirs, which will, cr- you know, create the conditions for irrigation of farmland. And, and so the creation of these reservoirs is processes of flooding. Uh, and, and so what happens, um, this, this land is the traditional lands. It had been, uh, these are the Lakota Sioux res- uh, traditional lands. This is a, a massive, Uh, sweep of land and the federal government in the Treaty of uh, Fort Laramie in 1851 initially set this was a a reserve of this land for the Great Sioux Nation. That's how they uh, called them. The Great Sioux Nation was a mass of many millions of acres of land that were reserved for those people, but that got chipped away over Um, over the next uh, half a century, three three quarters of a century to where it finally is today, these small um, scattered uh, reservations. And you'll see here that the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation straddles North and South Dakota. This of course is the site of the Standing Rock conflict against the, the Dakota Access Pipeline in 2016. But what happens with the creation of these five dams on the Missouri River is is that the flooding of these dams displaces uh, hundreds, over 900 families of Lakota people. Um, So we're talking about thousands of people who get um, removed yet again from their homelands in order to make way for these, these dams and these reservoirs. And uh, and what this displacement does is it takes it takes away their homes, it takes away their villages, it takes away um, their resources like timber and food and medicine, everything that uh, indigenous people of that area rely for their their um, their livelihoods and their their existence on. Um, so this is a, a massive, uh, you know, it's it's culturally genocidal for the people here. Now, if we look at this image here in the middle, there's something similar but very different going on. This is the Columbia River watershed in um, the Pacific Northwest. Um, This is where the Colville Indian Reservation where my ancestry is, is right about here on the upper Columbia Plateau. Uh, And you'll see that the headwaters of the Columbia River begin in British Columbia up here in Canada, and then it flows through Washington and through uh, out to the Pacific Ocean, but you'll see the watershed includes tributaries in Oregon in Idaho, in Montana, and Idaho uh, and Montana and in British Columbia too. So, um, so what happens in, in just a few years before the Pick Sloan gets passed, is um, the building of the Grand Coulee Dam. And the Grand Coulee Dam, um, it gets it's being built throughout the mid to late 1930s. And it's built on our reservation, the Colville Indian Reservation. And the Grand Coulee Dam is celebrated at the time as uh, being, it's the largest dam in the world. So it's celebrated as this like engineering marvel. And the Grand Coulee Dam creates a lake called Roosevelt Lake and and it floods um, a place that is uh, up here on the upper Columbia, right around here called the Kettle Falls or what we called in our, uh, in in Soqqin language, swanetku and it's a area that's a falls that's a massive fishery for salmon. Um, because as river people, as uh, Columbia River people, um, we, we know ourselves as salmon people, much the way that the Sioux and Lakota people know themselves as buffalo people. People on the Columbia River understand themselves as salmon people because salmon is Uh, central to our culture. Salmon fed us for thousands of years. We have a relationship to salmon that is um, a sacred relationship, a a, a relationship of reciprocity. And um, and the same is true for the people of the lower Columbia Plateau down here where there was a a fishery called Celilo Falls that that rivaled the Kettle Falls. Um, And this this fishery was drowned in the early 1940s as well because of the building of the Dalles Dam. So, um, so what happens is that the, the flooding of our, fa- of our falls, now the Kettle Falls, there's, it's impossible to overstate what an important cultural site this was for our people. Um, people from in the entire region of Washington and British Columbia would gather here every year for thousands of years for these, um, these salmon fishing events that would go on for weeks. And so when the Grand Coulee Dam was built and that site was flooded, it was like ripping the heart out of our culture. Um, And the same was true for the people of Celilo Falls when that was flooded for the Yakimas and the Umatillas and the Cayuses and other uh, associated so-called river tribes down there. Um, They no longer have access to their salmon fishing sites as well. In fact, what's happened here, um, the Columbia River River watershed has, has over 60 dams built into it. Um, And the, it's had a different kind of impact, rather, not so much displacing people, what these dams have done have impeded the salmon runs, um, and has led to this ecological uh, disaster that's, uh, that's unfolding in front of our eyes to this day, which is the collapsing of salmon populations and um, and numerous salmon populations. And so the, this collapsing of salmon populations is an ecological disaster because salmon is said to be a keystone species. Um, and as a keystone species, it means that it feeds numerous, salmon feed numerous other species. So if salmon population collapse, collapses, it leads to the collapse of other, other species. Um, and so there's a, a, uh, huge effort underway in in this part of the country, um, and others as well. Actually, to to uh, to s- slow down or reverse this uh, the collapsing salmon populations. So um, so that's that's another particular kind of uh, you know environmental. We're talking about environmental injustices here. This is um, how I write about it in the book. These are um, this is um, you know, the scope of this is way beyond. Um, environmental racism that is about um, risk and harm from toxic development. This is how the the rebuilding of a remaking of landscapes is culturally genocidal and physically genocidal for Native people. Um, Here in this image on the right is something completely different. This is a, a representation of uranium mining and how Uh, the extensive uranium mining throughout the mid 20th century is represented by these black areas. These are black dots. Oops. Um, These uh, these are all expended abandoned uranium mines and you'll see the proliferation of them here, the concentration here in the southwest, um, especially on the Navajo Nation um, where um, most of the uranium deposits have uh, exist in the United States. And um, and so uh, just in the Navajo Nation alone, we have over a thousand abandoned uranium mines um, that have never been cleaned up, which means that these uranium mines are still, they're still uh, contaminating the landscape in, in, on the air, in the lands, and in the, the water, even the groundwater. So uh, this is ongoing, an ongoing ecological disaster that is impacting the health of um, Navajo people still with elevated rates of lung cancers and other respiratory um, diseases, as well as the lives of Pueblo peoples down here in New Mexico, where uh, all this uranium mining has been uh, happening. So um, so this is, a, again, another type of ecological disaster um, that that exposes indigenous people to these um, ongoing um, uh, you know disastrous impacts to their health and to their lands and cultures so um, so we're so this, these ideas of modernity are uh, are ecocidal processes for for the, the environments and um, and because native people are so closely tied to their lands these are, uh, these are the eco side, so the eco side of an ecosystem, the killing of an ecosystem is always, always, always tied to the killing of native bodies and cultures. So um, so one of the things that my book does, um, and, and this is what I'm doing here, sort of hitting on the high points, kind of the main points of the book is how, um, we come to in the united states this uh this uh in environmental movement that we have now and it becomes it comes as be, it begins with um a, a growing angst in the settler population about um the the growing urbanization especially in the east um and the the perception that wild spaces these ur- these um these pristine wilderness areas are uh, disappearing. And, uh, it, you know, with, with uh, the march of Western civilization across the continent and, and then the closing of the frontier, which, you know, is, happens around 1850 when California gets made a state. So there's all this growing angst about um, the shrinkage of these wild places that America, you know, holds so dear, but that is but that is built on an idea of wilderness uh, again as being places with no humans, and um, which of course is not true because because indigenous people have inhabited these places since time immemorial, um, just because. Uh, settler people saw land lands. They did not see Indigenous peoples on those lands. You know, in uh, dense populations, they were still using those lands um, uh, in in ways that, again, the pop, the settler population didn't recognize. And um, and so you know, we have people, we have beginning of this conservation and preservation movement with people like Henry David Thoreau and John Muir and then later um, uh, Gifford Pinchot and Aldo Leopold and some other you know, early conservationist uh, type of people. And, um, and so in this history at the, the beginning of the conservation movement, um, which we can say sort of begins with um, the, the establishment of state parks I'm sorry, national parks. So this angst about disappearing wilderness, um, it ha- it's tied up with the, the res- reserving of these, um, these uh, areas for national parks beginning in 1872 with the establishment of Yellowstone. And so in, during this period of, of establish- establishing this particular state park, What's happening is that the, the federal government is aggressively pursuing Indian people on the plains, um, imposing these very um, uh, oppressive treaties on them to force land sessions in order to contain Native people to these islands, as they call them islands of lands, these reservations. Uh, in order to facilitate the transfer of these lands to settler, the settler population as they sweep across the continent. Um, and so this, these processes of, of creating these state parks is, is uh, parallel to these very violent processes of uh, dispossession and subsequent erasure of Native people in these very genocidal ways. Um, And um, so it's all narrated with this, through this idea of white settler supremacy, because um, white Europeans perceive them have already constructed themselves as superior uh, because of their religion and their cultures. And uh, and it becomes it's becoming articulated in the legal system. Um, It it also it's the, about the encoding of this white settler supremacy uh, into this new conservation and uh, preservation movement or what we've sometimes is called uh, proto-environmentalism. And, and so throughout the early 20th century, all of these these logics of white and settler supremacy become embedded into all of these new kinds of uh, the creations of laws and and agencies and uh, and organizations that are about the protecting of these you know so-called wild spaces. Now that indigenous peoples are have been cleared off, so we're talking about an ethnically cleansed landscape. Um, None of that is really considered, but by the time that we get to um, the mid 20th century, and what's been called second wave environmentalism, um, with the, the the back to the land movement, as we see uh, represented here, uh, you know, the the back to the land movement begins with the, the counterculture movement. Uh, you know, Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson has published her book Silent Spring in what 1961, which sort of begins this new, this new sense of angst about the environment um, with the, the you know, DDT is a problem and it's leading to the collapse of you know bald eagle populations. Um, then the Cuyahoga River catches on fire because it's so toxic. Uh, In 1969, there's a massive oil spill off the coast of Santa Barbara, and then it leads to the creation of the um, Environmental Protection Act uh, and then the Environmental Protection Agency and a whole new suite of laws um, designed designed for uh, environmental protection. Uh, and, And so these new kind of sensibilities and new logics about protecting the environment Um, are happening. But something else is also happening culturally. And and it's that um, a a sort of a new respect for American Indian people. Native people have had no respect at all up until now. But this new environmental movement is coinciding with um, the civil rights movement. Um, And the civil rights movement, of course, begins with, uh, you know, uh, the the ending of um, uh, Jim Crow laws, Uh, and the the Civil Rights Act gets passed in 1964. And, uh, and so there's this new, uh, new struggle for rights for people of color, black Americans. Uh, And then uh, the American Indian movement, the, the, the uh, Chicano movement happens. The American Indian movement is happening um, in, in these urban spaces too. But so all of that's happening at the same time and there are new kinds of uh, alliances formed across these movements. And so the, the hippie movement uh, you know, latches on to uh, the Indians, and they start going to. They start perceiving that American Indians, you know, they weren't maybe ignorant savages after all, because because look, the Indian Indian lands, you know, were we now we know that they knew how to take care of their lands. They lived in peace and harmony, and uh, you know, they were the original environmentalists. These these kinds of new tropes. Start these new stereotypes start to emerge during this time, um, and of those of us who are old enough to remember the crying Indian commercial in 1971, know that this is really the beginning of this this new stereotype of the uh, the ecological Indian, and so um, so the hippies are you know they're emulating that. They, they want to go back to the land and live like the Indians did. And so they start growing their hair long and they start wearing beads and feathers and moccasins. And um, they start buying big chunks of cheap land where they can go uh, back to the land and live that way. And they live in teepees. Like this is a very, very common thing in those early uh, hippie communes. Um, and so there's all this cultural appropriation getting mixed in with this uh, you know, well-meaning, but uh, but but still uh, 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 a kind of, a new kind of uh, fetishizing of Native people, and that's really what's happening here, is this fetishism of Native people, but without actually uh, understanding what Native people are still fighting for, and that they're still fighting uh, to protect their lands, and to have, um, to have, Uh, rights and to have their treaties being respected. And so all this new kind of appropriation is also connected to this this word, going back to that word epistemicide, the killing, the actual killing of indigenous knowledge systems, which I will talk about in this slide. Um, so yeah, this brings us to this co- this conversation about indigenous knowledge and um, that thing that the the c- counterculturists uh, were were seeking seeking right seeking to understand. Um, they called it you know indigenous Native American spirituality and they and you know uh, Native American mythology and Native and all these really soft terms um, that were sort of reduced to this these ideas of American uh, Indian spirituality or spiritualism and that's what they were seeking these counterculturalists they wanted they wanted that knowledge but they didn't really understand it they didn't understand the cultural contexts of those knowledges of those knowledge systems and they they brought their Um, their values of universalism, they thinking that all religions are equal and universal and uh, uh, free for the taking, they brought all that entitlement with them, but not understanding that these these cultural systems are born of particular ecosystems. So native people's cultures and, and religions are born because of their very particular relationships to very particular uh, environments and ecosystems. Uh, And so so very broadly conceived indigenous knowledge comes out of these these land management practices uh, and their relationships uh, to those places. Um, If we understand indigenous knowledge as being place-based and ecosystem-based, we can say that there's not one kind of monolithic universal indigenous knowledge system, but there are many kinds of knowledges because there are many kinds of ecosystems. And so these result in in particular cultural Uh, ways of knowing the world that's all that word epistemology that's all that means it's just cultural ways of knowing the world and so um, traditional ecological knowledge t or tek is one type of knowledge system and these knowledge systems are not um, these are not just theoretical these are uh, applied knowledge systems so these are not just again warm and fuzzy you know Uh, theories. They are applied knowledge systems and I have a really quick video to show you what we mean by this.
3: this. This forest is about to go up in flames. Don't worry, it's intentional. We're here in Roslyn, Washington at a prescribed burn and it's actually supposed to make the forest more resistant to fires because these woods have been really unhealthy. Prescribed burn is a vaccination against really, really bad fires. And just like giving out shots, you need people who know what they're doing.
4: This is like the main tool of prescribed fire. You get a little bit of an arm workout. Yes.
3: (laughs) Today, prescribed burning is showing up more and more in state forest management policies. Why? Because wildfires are way worse than they used to be. A century of poor forest management and fire suppression has created a lot of fuel to burn all that underbrush acts like kindling climate change leads to hotter temperatures and longer dry periods which create perfect conditions for a wildfire to start put all that together and you have the makings of a disaster today's wildfires can even take out big old growth trees that have historically been able to stand up to wildfire Take this piece of ponderosa pine that's been around for over two centuries. This cross section of a tree trunk is about to teach us a bunch of history. So show some respect and pay attention. Before European settlers arrived, Native American tribes in the Western US were already forest management experts. Many native peoples embraced fire as part of certain ecosystems. In fact, many trees in the West, like ponderosa pines and giant sequoias, are made healthier by regular human managed fire. The Yakima nation used prescribed burning to keep the forest healthy and to cultivate different resources they depended on, like berry plants. But when colonists showed up, it didn't occur to them that the forests were so impressive and the timber so strong because they've been taken care of by humans.
4: I mean, there were very colorful responses. In some instances, it is, they're just burning things up. They would also notice these abundant berry fields, and they wouldn't always make the connection.
3: In 1910, there was a massive wildfire that spread across Montana, Idaho, and Washington. As a result, the federal government was like, we've got to take better care of these forests. Time for a forest service. Up until that point, there had been some debate over prescribed burning. But the new agency imposed a hard and fast fire suppression policy. No burning, no exceptions. Traditional burning was outlawed and tribal members were punished for practicing it. And it turns out that was not the best way to keep forests healthy. It was also really culturally oppressive preventing fires was another way of directly reducing native influence within their ancestral territories. And forests that had been managed by humans for thousands of years were suddenly growing wild and unchecked. So that's basically how we end up here, in a period of time that's warmer than ever before in recorded history, with a whole lot of very unruly forests. Around the 1970s, some ecologists started to point out that suppressing fire in forests was actually making wildfire damage worse. And that way of thinking has gotten more and more traction. 2014, we had a record wildfire year. In 2015, we broke that record. I think people were, what are all the tools in the toolbox? How do we protect ourselves? How do we make our force more healthy? In 2017, the state of Washington made prescribed burns central to its 20-year fire management plan. We obviously are inheriting a problem that's been over 50 years in the making. It's going to take us a while to get on top of it, but we are going to make a significant difference in restoring the health of our forest, and it will include prescribed fire. Which brings us full circle, working with fire instead of suppressing it, a practice that's still alive in many tribal cultures today.
4: What we're really looking at is a group of people that have been able to survive for thousands of years based on their relationship, interaction, and management with resources. I don't feel like you're going to have a very efficient project in today's world, ignoring a thousands-year-old data set. This forest is
0: about...
4: There we go. So, um, so where does that leave us now? So the, the point about that was that, that to, 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 understand that the way native people lived on the land was, uh, what were they, they actively managed their landscapes and, um, and that is uh, true everywhere. Uh, in some places like here in California, they, um, did very, very intensive on uh, what's been called horticulture, a type of, uh, wildland horticulture management. Um, but. But what does it mean? Like so if we take all of this stuff into consideration and, and contextualize it, then we're talking about a, how we decolonize environmental justice. And um, uh, it, if to decolonize environmental justice means that we have to recognize the, the US history of an ongoing structure of settler colonialism. So I'm um, understanding that colonialism has never ended. It just became a structure. Um, it also has to recognize indigenous people's very different relationship to land um, and how, uh, how we understand land in relational terms, not in terms of like how we can exploit the land for our own benefit, um, but this very kinship-oriented system. Um, understand that, that uh, the right to consent to development on tribal and treaty lands must be followed as the US, uh, you know, said when it declared, it endorsed the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the United Nations uh, Declaration. Um, So this is different than consent, so there has to be, uh, where where Native people are demanding that the US just abide by what it agrees to, um, to, uh, to obtain the consent of Native people for projects that involve their lands. Um, that's why, just to point out, the Dakota Access Pipeline happened because there was no, there wasn't even any uh, meaningful consultation, let alone consent. Um, but Native people need to, to be uh, to be respected in their opinions about these kinds of projects. And then the recognition of, indig- of Indigenous knowledge. There needs to be a... Uh, uh, you know, more and more incorporation of indigenous knowledge into land management practices at all levels. And then finally, um, this is kind of some of the stuff I'm thinking through right now in the new book about, uh, you know, what does it mean for for humans to have um, an ethical relationship to the land as Aldo Leopold wrote about uh, in his famous uh, essay in 1949 called The Land Ethic. Um, Aldo Leopold, of course, gets hailed as being sort of revolutionary for saying that we shouldn't just, as humans, think about ways that we can best use the land, but understand ourselves as part of the land. Um, Of course, it was, you know, he was, he to this day is celebrated as revolutionary for that, even though Native people had been living that way for thousands of years. So this is kind of, uh, doesn't make sense. Um, that this narrative has uh, evolved this way. Uh, And N. Scott Momaday, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning, you know, icon, uh, uh, Kiowa, um, you know, luminary in the literary world also wrote about land ethics, but but from an American Indian perspective. And um, so it's very, very different. These ideas of land ethics are very different. But one of the things, uh, the thing is that neither one of them write about what human ethical relationships to each other are on the land. And so um, it's the, the separation of these two kinds of uh, topics of, of environmental ethics on one hand, and then in, environmental justice on the other, because environmental justice is always all about the relationship of humans to each other. Uh, and so it's these two two very different topics that need to be brought into conversation with each, with each other, but typically aren't. And, um, and so that's what I'm trying to think through if we're to think about how we all uh, move together into the future in ways that are um, sustainable and are just for everybody, um, especially for American Indian people. And um, so, yeah, and so this is about what it means to be accountable. This is a, this is a conversation ultimately about accountability and that's how I'm thinking about it. So um, that's the end of my slideshow. I'm gonna stop it right now. And then if, we've, uh, if there are questions or however you wanna do this now, Brian.
0: Yeah, we'll um, have a musical response and then we'll I'll share some of the comments. And um, if you'd like to chime in during that time, uh, that's fine. Thank you.
2: Okay. Let us sing this song For the turning of the world That we may turn as one with every voice, every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echoes of our turn. With every voice, with every song, we will move.
0: to the West Choir and uh, most importantly to Dina today. That was an incredibly informative talk um, and very thought provoking. I wanna invite folks, this is the time when we add our own voices to the morning, sharing our reflections on the platform or wh- what resonates in our own lives. I invite you to share in the Zoom chat or in um, sharing comments. And if there are questions, um, it sounds like Dina's being very gracious, would we, answer some of those uh, questions. We will be mindful of the time and um, and her time as well. Um, I wanna make sure to share, um, Hannah and Bren stating, uh, thank you. That was amazing, informative talk. I so appreciate hearing all the the SC connections. And um, that was an informative, information packed, important and enlightening address. This is from Joe. Thank you so much. This country has shamefully broken so many agreements with people who are already living here. Peter Bishop shared um, it is interesting to pair the need to work with Native people about how to do some um, how to do some development with the corresponding systems within Washington, DC, where we have a level of government known as neighborhood advisory commissioners. Oh, in um, Washington, DC's government. Um, they work with local people and are actively involved in negotiations about development within D.C. I was very pleased that our speaker made me think that she is trying to find the proper kind of negotiations that can work today. And um, also, they uh, did uh, sharing. a um, uh, Wonderful educational talk. Thank you, Dina. And Terry Smith, the platform raises many questions about our relationship to the native people who traditionally occupy the area in which we live currently. Abby shared, um, I have so much to learn, appreciate the understanding of env- environmental injustice for indigenous people as a matter of cultural and physical genocide. Um, and uh, Nikki shared, lovely presentation it was insightful to see the ways, um, the ways in which native voices have not been centered in eco protection and management efforts. And Mark sharing, thank you, Dina, for an educational, enlightening presentation. I want to make sure, um, all right, Sheila stating, uh, thank you, Professor Julia um, Whitaker, for giving me a new perspective on our nation's history. Absolutely. Um, I love hearing all these comments. I was also struck by just how much to learn, uh, how much information, how many aspects of um, uh, the pieces of, of this being named for, you know, what they are, um, different types of um, cultural, physical genocide, the impacts on our environment and our, um, and the peoples who were living here and continue to live here. Um, Jeff sharing, uh, Brian, you've mentioned the Armenian genocide before the platform. Just to note, I spent some time in Armenia as part of a university course back in 1979. Very cool. Um, I also traveled through the Providence en um, route to what was then Soviet Georgia Memories of that tragedy are still very fresh in the memories of the population. Yes, I um, I uh, appreciate you sharing that, Jeff and um, uh, Maceo saying, I will rewatch this. I'm happy for the children who get to learn about this at a young age, rather than the perspectives that many of us learn about this in school. Right, and the um, and the unlearning that has to take place, and the eye opening um, experience as we learn the details of some of these situations. This is me sharing as well that. Um, it's nice to think of being able to teach some of these things more correctly and more holistically from the beginning. Um, Macio shared the um, rich exhibit at the American Indian Museum on the treaties the US has made and broken with indigenous people and shared a link there. So I encourage folks to take a look at that. And Judy sharing, I particularly appreciate the connection you gave to the end of relationship of people to one another as crucial to the way we treat the natural world. Well, I will, um, I want to um, share thanks with everyone and make sure um, I share, let's say, Ann Baker, you've got the last comment here and then we'll keep moving on. I'm wondering how non-Native Americans can work with Native Americans to share this land in a more just and ecological sensitive way. Um, Dina, if there's anything you wanna add before we um, transition, lots of appreciation um, some some questions but if there's anything you wanted to add to the conversation I love to hear that and give you that space to address those
4: yeah thanks Brian um, it's a good way to people this is always the the next question like what do we do now um, how do we move forward in 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 a good way in a just way and then I think there's a lot of ways that's a you know obviously a big conversation but I would say uh, one of the things that you can do is start, I don't know to whatever degree you're present to this new land back movement, uh, start start attuning yourself to that and maybe do some research on it. There's a native, one of the things that settler colonialism, the U.S. as a settler colonial state, one of the things that it's it's done is it's rendered. Um, unspeakable, the idea of returning land to Native people. Like, you know, we can think of justice in all these other ways and honor the treaties and, and, and all this, but we can never talk about giving the land back. Um, well, this is part of what's happening now. This is, uh, you know, we're, we're having this conversation um, and it's very intricate, it's very involved. Um, but there, there are actually lots of examples of how land has been returned to native people um, and in many different kinds of ways. Um, part of it is uh, returning public lands. Um, 48% of all the lands in the whole Western United States are public lands or owned by the federal government. Um, some of those lands uh, you know, are being argued for return and have been returned, actually, but also to um, con- to continue to incorporate Native peoples in the land management practices of um, agencies like the National Park Service. They're actually doing a fairly good job of doing that. Um, but there's, you know, it's growing, and um, there are uh, lots of ways that land that there we can have land return and Native people. Um, restored to decision-making uh, processes, to shared governance, things like that, um, that give them power in what happens on the land, um, especially around uh, public land, public spaces, um, but also things like land conservancies and uh, land trusts, things like that. So um, that's what I would I would just leave you with, is start um, looking at that, that land back movement and and you know find ways for you to fit yourself into these conversations about um, you know what what American Indians and why indigenous knowledge is so important to the way that we imagine um, a sustainable future.
0: Thank you so much for that, and uh, so so much of the thought-provoking information um, shared this morning with us. And I know lots of folks, myself included, will. be taking additional time to dive into this and digest this information and um, so many so many important factors and so many intersections between different um important pieces to how we go about interacting with folks living in this country and who, who are already here and who um continue to be here so thank you again and i want to um transition now to our share the plate and we want to share, um, just as we share our perspectives in this community, too, so too do we share our resources and gifts. Here at West, we split the Sunday collection between our operating budget and a fund dedicated to justice and compassion. We appreciate each person's generous giving as they are able. This month, half of the offering is dedicated to the Rock Creek Conservancy. The uh, Rock Creek Conservancy exists to restore Rock Creek and its parklands as a natural oasis for all people to appreciate and protect and um, they are um, the only organization dedicated solely to Rock Creek and its parks. The creek meanders 33 miles through Washington metro area, crossing federal lands, as well as district, city, county, and state boundaries. Although parkland borders much of the creek, the surrounding development threatens the health and beauty of these natural areas. Rock Creek Conservancy is uniquely positioned to foster outreach, education, and efforts to overcome the threats, and through a Combination of education advocacy, the strategy is to build partnerships with government agencies, nonprofits, community groups, and residents to work together to preserve Rock Creek for present and future generations. You see the slide, um, on the slide, you can see the number for giving for texts um, for collection today, and that's 202-335-1885. You can also make a gift online through the donate button at our website, ethicalsociety.org. We'll now receive your gifts and the musicians' gifts of music. You to so many of the people who helped create this morning's time together our speaker our speaker Dina Gileo Whitaker our interim music coordinator Leah Morris and the West chorus and guest musician Gary Hardnett. I know myself I need some more coffee <laughs> to clear my my brain today so I can speak um, thank you to Macy Thomas our membership coordinator thank you Robin Kravitz for communication support thank you to our new slide artist John and Abby Dakin Anyone who would like to join the slide creation team, please contact Robin. Thanks to tech host, um, John, and thank you for those who are leading and supporting the work in the week to come. At The conclusion of the platform, please join us for a virtual coffee hour. Once we're in the Zoom coffee hour space, we'll divide into breakout groups, which you're welcome to drift in and out of as you greet different people. It's a wonderful time to um, have some connection together, even though we're physically apart. To get to the Coffee Hour after closing words, point your browser to tiny.cc slash Coffee Hour. It won't be on this Zoom platform. We'll be closing this meeting and um, transitioning over to the Coffee Hour. We have opportunities for West members and friends to connect virtually during the week, including support meetings and discussion groups. You can find details for that and all of our events on the website calendar at ethicalsociety.org. We do have on May 1st at 10.30 a.m. a memorial for uh, Sandy, um, Biden, and May on May 2nd, um, 10 to 12, there's a town hall to discuss West's plans for re-emerging from the pandemic. We invite everyone there. Finally, thank you for being here with us. Now let's enjoy our closing song of the month and um, to, um, and hopefully switch together to the coffee hour to enjoy some time together to connect.
1: let okay. Fan into, into the flame, flame.
0: invite you to join me in our closing words for the month. Let us go into the week ahead with compassion, understanding, and commitment, strengthening community among us and beyond us for our hearts and our quest for a better world. Again, please join us for the virtual coffee hour. You can find the link on this slide or in the chat. If you are new to our community, please send an email to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas, and introduce yourself. And again, um, uh, we'll be closing this meeting in just a moment. It was lovely to spend the morning together and um, to be able to learn so much. All
1: right, folks. We're going to go ahead and close this meeting. Thank you all. Take care. Have a wonderful day.